The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I don't know what it's like worshiping in your living room, but I am surprised how this is now the third week that we've been here, and there's now fewer of us than ever. There are, I think, six of us here now. And it's uh, a worshipful atmosphere here, and I'm so thankful for that. The, the people who are working to put on this um, worship service of a sort, I'm, I'm thankful for what you guys are doing, and I'm thankful for how the elders have led us in prayer over the last few weeks, and the Nathan and the music team has been just a blessing to me, and I come here and I am worshiping in an empty gym, and it's a sweet thing. So may you do that in your living room also. So let me, let me pray again and, and let's begin. Father, look after your word here this morning, make it clear to us, build us up. It's about you building our lives and ultimately your church. And so help us to see that and trust you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The work cycles in our country at this current moment are very confused. An inordinate number of us are suddenly at home with no commutes and fewer meetings and less work in general, some without any work at all. Part of the country is essentially shut down. It's one half. And at the same time, others of us, maybe in the healthcare industry or in the financial industry, and certainly everybody connected to the production of toilet paper, you're working 24-7 with no end in sight and it is a bizarre dichotomy. Half of us don't have anything to do. And that makes us worried. And the other half of us have too much to do, and that also worries us. And Psalm 127, the passage before us this morning, has a wise word to all of us right there, whichever half of that you're in. And as such, as a psalm with a wisdom component in it, this psalm and the next one that follows are a bit different than what we have seen prior. We've been moving through the Psalms of Ascent now for a number of weeks, noticing how they are, they are songs, they are poems, they are um, literary works given by God to help us draw near to him as we read them and, and ruminate on them and pray them and, and make them our own cries and our own hopes. They, they grab our hearts and they are intended to take what's in our head, put it here, and then help us to ascend to God. Generally. But this morning, and next week too, deliberately what we find is something that's, that's a bit more overtly instructive. By God's design, this feels a little more like proverb than like prayer or song. It's a wise word from God that we should hear and, and heed. A word from God about how he is and where he is amidst our hard work and amidst our not working. Both. About how he's the one that we must depend on in, in both situations. Because if we don't, here's the wisdom component, 
If not, in both situations, and in fact, in all situations, what we end up with is vanity. Empty and worthless. No matter what you think you got, you got nothing. On the other hand, a life of depending on God leaves a person with a strong and secure house at rest. Even when you think you got nothing, you got all you need. It's wisdom here for us to consider. So that's what we're going to look at this morning and think about in Psalm 127. So let me read it, and then I'll draw two observations from it. 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So two observations. Here's the first. Dependence on God is our only hope for a truly fruitful life. Dependence on God is our only hope for a truly fruitful life. In verse 1, we get two Generic pictures of human activity. The building of a house, which we readily understand, and the watching over of a city. Back in those days, a city of any, any kind of importance and size would have had a protective wall built around it with various gates that were closed at night to keep out enemies with watchmen posted around the top of the wall to make sure nobody broke in or climbed over, guarding it. So building a house, watching over a city, back then two very common and easily understood activities which really are used here as a metaphor for all of life's activities. Everything we do, in one way or another, can fit under making or protecting. We make or we produce, we create, acquire, accumulate, design, construct, we build a house. And then we put a wall around it. We shield it, we conserve it, we nurture, we protect, we keep, we cover, we guard. We watch over it to keep it safe so that it thrives and, and continues on. That's human life. It's what we do. In a nutshell, that's existence here on earth. And the stark point of verse 1 is that we ourselves, in ourselves, by ourselves, can't do it effectively. Both sentences begin in the same way and rise up to the same punch. Unless the Lord, and literally it's if not the Lord, then in vain. If not the Lord, in vain. And then verse 2 begins again with the same word, vain. It's a stark assessment. If not, then vain over all of what we do. Now, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, 
this might sound a little familiar. Vanity, vanity is the, the frequent refrain of Ecclesiastes. And this psalm attributed to Solomon is connected to Ecclesiastes, which is also connected to Solomon. So there's, there's some overlap here. But a little bit of difference because we have a different word here actually for vain than what you find in Ecclesiastes. So there's a slightly different emphasis that, that we should realize here and not just import all that we think we know from Ecclesiastes. A little bit different. Here in our psalm, they're both wisdom literature, so they have similar points, but here in our psalm, we should keep our focus more directly on vain as in failure, ineffective, fruitless. More than just the feeling or the mental attitude of meaningless or empty that kind of dominates Ecclesiastes. So this psalm is not just saying, not just saying, Unless the Lord builds the house, at the end of it, you'll end up with a perfectly nice house, but you'll wonder what the point of it all is. That's more Ecclesiastes. His emphasis is on what you're trying to do won't work out right. Unless the Lord builds the house, you'll end up building a bad house or the wrong sort of house or a house that's completely too costly and you never use Something like that. Some sort of fail. And then maybe after that, you'll also wonder about what the point of it all was, the, the emotional, the feeling part of it that Ecclesiastes bent. That's there too, but it's kind of in the background. In the front, we need to think fruitless, done in vain, fail. That's a particular point here, and that's a constant human problem for all of us this side of the fall into sin. By ourselves, we are weak, and the world all around us does not cooperate. We work, and we work, but it never, never just quite works out just right. And then, all that we've gathered together runs through our fingers. We eke out an existence by the sweat of our brow, drawing from this reluctant ground. Yes, a little bit of a crop. Yeah, a little bit of a crop. Just a little bit this year, but also along with it comes thorns and thistles and death. Frustration and failure and shortage and pressure. All lifelong, hard, unforgiving, full of struggle, then you die. That's life. This side of the fall. And we know this and instinctively, how we often respond is by burning the candle at both ends to work harder and longer with more diligence. That's verse 2. We throw more money at the problem, and we apply more elbow grease, and we investigate, and we study, and we diversify, and we collaborate, and we buy a home security system, and we attempt to access and cozy up to people who have power and can help us trying just so hard to, to gather together the little pile of resources that we have and make something come of life and then keep it safe. But it just never quite works. Not that it absolutely never, ever, ever, ever in any way works. There is so much of the goodness of God. The, the general, gracious goodness, the common grace of God is in the world to such a degree that somehow it manages to hold together and move on. But it's never a full success, and there is always the rock in the shoe. 
This is the human predicament. Do you know this predicament? When you read through the first part of verse 2, does it resonate at all with your life? Any part of your life? Eating the bread of anxious toil. Metaphorically, because from your your late night dinner table, after you've worked all day long and then some and kind of rushed home at the end here and you're heating up the leftovers from your late night dinner table, you can see the failure coming on. And if you sit down too long, it'll catch you. So quick, eat, quick, get a little nap, quick, back at it. This is what makes work work. What makes it painful. It's the shadow of the curse that humans live under here and now. Are you at all familiar with this? And are you tired of it? Are you, are you one on the half of one of those sitting at home right now with nothing to do, which is not a good thing, worried and anxious as you see all that you've tried to build and tried to protect and gathered together now threatened and fleeing from you and you can't keep it? Are you financially vulnerable right now? You've saved and were careful your whole life and a month ago you had no worries but everything that you own just got cut in one-third when the stock market crashed and three million people filed for unemployment last week. Three million. More next week. Was that you? Will it be you? You tried to guard it, and you can't. A whole life worked to accumulate Or maybe you're one of those on the other end of the spectrum, frantically working and planning and striving how to respond to this unexpected financial and healthcare crisis that we have going on right now, laboring fast and hard and long, trying to protect, put back together literally life in some cases, but metaphorically life in many cases, unprecedented labors right now. And what is going to be the outcome of all that? We have no idea. None. We don't know and we won't know for years and years, decades, what the outcome of all of the decisions and all the laws and all the courses of of life we are enacting and and bringing on right now, it's going to change things in dramatic ways which we have no real idea about. We are in way over our heads here. This is all incredibly complex. And we are small. And only a fool says, we got this. I saw the flag flying over the Seattle Space Needle. We got this. Right. (laughs) Sure we do. (laughs) Only a fool says that. A wise person says, Lord, 
If you don't got this, all of our efforts are in vain. What we come up with on our own and enact, even if it seems successful, and even if it seems to get us through this month and this year and this crisis, may very well be a gigantic fail in ways that we cannot see and don't discover for a decade or three. We have no other choice. We will work and we will plan and we will make decisions and we will act. We will follow the knowledgeable experts that we have. They're the ones who understand these things best. But the wise person says, we do that prayerfully saying, Lord, help. We must do that praying with hearts dependent on you, Lord, for apart from you, we can do nothing. And even if we think we have accomplished something in the end, we might find out that it was all in vain. This is the reality we must face and walk in. Dependence on God is the only hope we have for a fruitful life. The one and only hope and that should be clear to us now, maybe more so than ever. So there's an alert, and there's a warning in this. That the first emphasis of this passage is kind of a, of a full stop, in vain. It should make us bump up against that and say, mm, I feel it in my life, whether I'm at home worried or frantic and worried. I feel it in my life and I feel the pressure. And, I, and if I stop and think for a second, I realize uh, I don't know what's going to happen next month or 10 years from now. We are small. There's a warning here to us, an alert. But if you turn it around, there's actually a strong hope. If not the Lord, in vain, turned around, becomes, what, what if, what if, what if we would actually be a person or people who labor with the Lord in dependence on the Lord? Do ask God to accomplish what needs to be done. Trust him with our lives. Let him be the one who builds them all together in whatever way that, that he decides how they should be. What, what then? Well, not no labor. We do still labor. It would be labor that's not in vain, but actually the opposite is successful, is fruitful, which is good and right and successful as he defines it. But it would get done and then it would get kept by God through us, but by God, by the omnipotent and wise one. And best of all, look at the end of verse 2. That would come with literal rest. He gives to his beloved sleep. 
Not he gives while we sleep, he gives sleep. Such a sharp and I think a wonderful contrast here. If you, if you put these two things together here, you've got, you've got two pictures. You've got one person who's up early and to bed late, running and striving and trying and working and eating in anxiety, trying to hold back the ocean tide with our feeble hands. And then they got another person who gets up, drinks her morning coffee, goes into work at 10, comes home at a decent time, eats casually, goes to bed and gets a solid eight hours like we were made for. Two sharp contrasts here. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I mean, it's, it's not that we go in, we always drink coffee in the morning, we always go into work at 10. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the contrast here is supposed to be anxiety and pressure and labor versus someone who's asleep, like maybe like David in Psalm 3. Do you know Psalm 3? David, Psalm 3 setting, chased by enemies. David says, ah, the enemies all around me. How many are my foes gathered, arrayed against me. But you, O Lord, are a shield all around me. So I lay down and slept. And I woke again for the Lord sustained me. He gave to his beloved, David, Sleep, like he gave to his beloved, the son of David, sleep. The boat is rocked, the storm is heavy, the water's flooding in, and the frantic, faithless disciples are completely anxious and worried. And where's Jesus? In the boat, asleep. Not because there's no danger, but because there is a God And to his beloved ones, he gives sleep. He gives a heart at rest. He says, very literally, sleep and sleep soundly. I got this. Really. You can take a third of your life off. I got this. That's a gift. That's a gift. You realize he designed us. He designed us to take one third of our life lie down, and be completely vulnerable and dependent. There's a lesson in that. And what he says is not a lesson of correction, it's a lesson of my goodness. It's a lesson that that I give this to you, and I I lay you down, and I put my hand on you and say, you're okay, I will watch. You don't have to be anxious and put it all together. I'll take care of it. He gives to his beloved sleep. There's, there's an alert and there's a warning about vanity, but really, if you turn it around, there's, there's a great offer and a great blessing here that dependence on God, reliance on God, produces a successful, fruitful, not in vain life that is filled with peaceful rest. He gives to his beloved sleep. That's his desire for us, his beloved ones, for you, Christian, and for anyone who would become a Christian. You would surrender your heart. If you, if you would... I mean, right now is a a great time. If you look at the world going nuts, and if you say, ah, Lord, he says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm not going to give you rest. I'm going to give you sleep. 
Those who would come in this simple, dependent faith that gives you rest and along with it a fruitful life, that's what the reality of, if you think about what the reality of Christ come, Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ reigning, what God has done in Christ, what does that say? That says God does not want his beloved ones, his people, to live perpetually stranded in foolish, fruitless existence under suffering of the curse. Genesis 3 and following says curse. And the work of God in Christ says no more. Barrenness and hardship, fruitfulness and rest. This is the beautiful offer of God in Christ. This is the desire of God in Christ. It's why he surrendered the son to the curse to free us from it. And it's the path of success and fruitfulness and rest all along the way through all of life for the beloved one Jesus and for all of God's beloved ones in Jesus, for all who trust him. That's what he wants for us, for you, Christian, now and always. And the alert here is not to chastise. The alert is to warn. That path is not the path. This one is. He's the only hope to the fruitful life that we want and that he wants for us. It brings us goodness in life and it brings him glory because he's the one who gives it, not us. If not the Lord vain, if the Lord fruit. So how can you develop and grow this sort of dependence on God? We need that. Well, a couple thoughts. Feed your mind and your heart with his word. I find a direct and clear correlation. When I do not feed my mind and my heart with the word of God regularly, I drift back towards verse one or the beginning of verse two. I drift. Feed your mind and your heart with this word. This is where he shows himself to you and shows himself to be good and shows himself to be trustworthy. Regularly feed yourself with that. And probably, I'm going to guess, probably what comes along there somewhere is repentance begins to seem appropriate for your unbelief, for your, your wandering, at least it does for me. So you read, breathe, repent, and then you take your issues in life Start with the ones that are causing verse 2 anxiety. Maybe that's some of the current events. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's other things. But you take those issues, whatever they are for you right at the moment, and you get prayerful with those issues first rather than getting busy on them. You get prayerful with them. 
What I mean by that is, is you take these issues, you, you take something, Lord, I'm, I'm concerned about, our financial situation is tenuous right now, I'm concerned about that. I've got a gigantic target on my back. I am one of those people who would be at risk for the coronavirus. I'm, I'm worried about that. You take that issue, whatever it is, and you say, here, Lord, you surrender the outcome and the path, big and small, to his will. You surrender all that. Sometimes, see, we have the right outcome. We, we know what, the, what a good outcome would be, but it's got to be this way. It's got to happen like this. I've, 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 been, I've been there like off and on for weeks now because I think about various things related, related to the church, related to this this body of people and then the organization of the church, and I think it should be like this. I know I've got good goals, good end goals, but I think I'm supposed to reach them like this. And I realize I've got to surrender the end goals and the means and the path. Here, Lord, here's, here's my issue. Whatever the outcome would be, and whatever the way you want to bring about the outcome, whatever that would be, here. You put that in front of him. You can trust him. You can trust him. He's for you in Christ. Christian, this is the beauty. He's for you. He's for you. You lay your needs and, and your ignorance and your fear and your desires at his feet. And you ask him for help. You ask him for guidance and power. And then holding on to that, carrying it with you, then you get busy. You don't not get busy. But you take that with you, that heart of, of surrendered trust, and then you get busy with it, remembering all the day long, I surrender the outcomes and the paths to you, and I look to you to accomplish what I cannot. And then, rinse and repeat. Back to the Bible. Back to God. Lord, here's my heart. Make me new. Here's my desires and here's my, here's my thoughts and plans. Rule over them and make them what they should be. And as again and again and again you walk through that, what happens is that God grows you and then God grows in you and through you a fruitful life to his glory. So he gets all the credit for it. Bible, prayer, work, in that order. Lord, show me yourself. Here's me and my thoughts and desires. Help me as I then live in this world faithfully working. He'll produce in us and through us the fruitful life that he wants for us and that we want for us. That's the first point. Secondly, then, it is the Lord who builds and protects families, too. It is the Lord who builds and protects families, too. Verses 3 to 5 take a shift to talk about kids and families, which may at first seem odd, until you realize the connection that hinges on the word house a word that's often used metaphorically to refer to a family line, like the house of David, we would say. 
So verse 1 is about the Lord building a house effectively, fruitfully, and verse 3 is also about the Lord building a house, a family line, effectively and fruitfully. He's the one who does that too. And that's the proper emphasis. God does that. God gives it. We don't make it. Think about this carefully for just a second because it's very easy when we we come to wisdom literature to create a problem for us, a a problem of of expectation. Some people are are inclined sometimes to read wisdom literature as if it's it's a, a law or some sort of a, of a promise with a tight and binding connection. If I do X, then God will do Y. That's not how wisdom statements work. And so carefully, verse 3 is not a promise from God to every Christian or every Christian couple. We can claim this and say something like, God will certainly give us children. He promised. He gives good things to his people. Children are a good thing. He promised to give them to me. That's not, not it. Or worse, we shouldn't read it and say, if we obey him, if we do the right things, then he will reward us. It says reward, right? Then he will give us like a quid pro quo. If I be good, he will give kids. No, that's not how it works. Sometimes in his good purposes, he always gives us good things. And sometimes in his good purposes, he purposes nothing at random, nothing arbitrary, but sometimes he purposes good things for people and for couples that include not a family or to not give kids or not give kids right now or not give more kids. So we have to handle this this type of statement carefully and wisely. It's wisdom to us about how God and the world usually works and how we should think about things but not promises and laws. The point here, rather, is the same point made up above in verse 1. First half. God is the one who gives children as a heritage. A heritage is a a precious possession that's passed on that has longevity to it. So children, valuable, given, that's where the word reward comes in, to his people, he gives his beloved ones sleep and he gives his beloved ones children too. It's the parallel. He does it. So there is a little bit of a, of a point here about children as a, as a heritage, as a reward, as a good thing, which sometimes modern people need to hear. This would not have been an issue in the original audience. So we, we're, I'm picking an issue here that, that's not part of the original point. Nobody in the ancient world would have wondered if kids were useful or helpful. Big, good families were a blessing, were wealth, Power, security, strength. But sometimes today we wonder. We, we see them as a burden or maybe a, an impingement on our freedom and our resources. And so this is, a, this is a word that we do need to hear. No, 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 it's, it's a, a blessing from God. Children are a blessing. But the emphasis here is from God, not from us. God builds the family. Okay, parent, 
God builds the family. So with our families and kids, with their creation and growth and development and maturing and all the labor and all the watching over and all the long hours and all the money it's going to cost us, we look at that, we take all of that, and likewise sit that bundle down at God's feet and say, here, this too. Unless you build this, unless you build these ones, I'm going to drive myself crazy with my helicopter parenting in vain. Parenting is not for the weak of heart. It is hard work and full of worry if you do it right. If you do it almost right. If you do it fully right, it's full of hard work and you cast the anxiety of all of it at the feet of the Lord and go to sleep at night at rest. We can't even make kids let alone make children good and wise and conscientious worshipers of God in Christ. Only he can. Only he can give us children like that. So we must parent, just like we must work in the world, we must parent, challenging as it is, and leave the outcome fully to him. He saves, he sanctifies, he preserves We trust it all to him. That is challenging. That's the truth. So how's your parenting, parent? Is it dependent? Hard work, but dependent and hopeful and ultimately restful? Or is it accidentally independent and filled with control? Filled with control and with anxiety. That's a key tip-off to you. If you're looking, which is it? If I find myself filled with control and needing to make them be and anxious about it when they aren't, that might be the tip-off that there's a little more self-dependence than I realized. A little more labor done in anxiety than I realized. Again, there's the alert here, but then there's also the great hope, the promise. Trust him. He's the one who does it. He'll build them. He'll protect them. According to his good purposes. So there's relief for you, parent, in seeing that children are a heritage From the Lord, not a heritage that I make. They are a heritage given. It's just like the the attempting to build the house and protecting the city. Same thing. There's a release, and actually, there's something really helpful for every teenager and every young person to see here. Uh, 
Oftentimes, if you can picture this graphically, if, if I'm the parent and I've got a kid here and I've got God here, accidentally, inadvertently, because I so much want this, what I end up doing is I, I put my hands on and try to control and shape and make this one be and grow this one up and make them a heritage and make them God worshipers. And, and what I actually need to do is relieve myself from the pressure of that and actually get out of the way and say, Lord, I want to be an instrument in your hand in their lives. I will. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go to sleep for one-third of my life and theirs and trust them to you. There's good for me. There's good for him and her, too, to see, oh, this is not about ultimately me and mom, me and dad. This is about me and God. Teenager, young person, this is about you and God. For some period of time, your parent is an instrument in God's hands. God is the one at work in your life. God is the one to whom you are accountable. Parent, there's relief in that, and there's actually a lot of usefulness in that. Leave them to him. He'll attend to them. As he sees fits, as he sees fit in the way and in the timing he sees fit, that he will attend to them. He builds the house, family too. And ironically, in him building them, that is, the children, and guarding them and raising them up. That's also a part of how God means to protect and secure the life of the parent and the health of the family as a whole. That's what verses 4 and 5 are getting at. A reality which becomes even more clear when we understand something in its original context. In 3 and 4, probably, if you're reading a modern translation, it might say, behold, children like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Literally, that's sons. And it's worth holding on to that just for a second to understand something about the culture that has a meaning in it. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Kids, specifically sons, because sons that you get in your youth are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. It says, stashed away in a quiver, kept for later, when you need them. This is explicitly a conflict context, as is verse 5. Speaking with the enemy in the gate, the gate of a city was where court was held. That's where all the legal dealings of a, of a town or of a city were done. The, the legal entity was, was, sit, was seated there at certain times, and people with grievances would come and would argue them out and they would be decided. So when you're contending with an enemy or speaking with an enemy in the gate, you're in some sort of a, of a legal conflict. And such a man, such a blessed man like this, a fortunate man like this, will not be shamed and abused and taken advantage of when he's at court in the gate of the city. Why not? Because this weak old man will stand there with a bunch of God-given good sons. This 50, 60-year-old man, the tail end of his life, is going to stand there 
with his 34-year-old son, his 31-year-old son, his 28-year-old son, his 26-year-old son, his 23-year-old son, all lined up behind him, arms crossed, jaws set, silent, but watching and listening. Can you picture that? I'm in court. And if those are all daughters, they're married off and gone elsewhere. And this man stands there all alone and asks the court for mercy and asks his adversary to be kind. But since they're sons, he demands the justice he is due right now and he gets it. Can you picture it? He's secured. His life is protected. Why? Because 30 years ago, God gave him a heritage. God gave him sons and built them up. God gave them and God built them up. God creating a wall around this man in his old age, provided sons for him in his youth and so protected him in his elderly years. Now, that changes a bit for us today, but you've got to feel this. That changes for us today a little bit. Because power today is not all about muscles and blades. That's why it had to be sons back then. Because power is about muscle and blades. But now it's not. Now, certainly there is, there is a lot of good strength in good masculinity. And every woman can tell a story about being taken advantage of in some way that a man doesn't get. Because it just doesn't happen to men. That's how the world works, unfortunately. So good men in a family always protect the family in some unique ways. But in many, many, many ways today, women can be just as effective as men in wielding modern forms of power to protect, sometimes even more so. So for our purposes today, we should change this and think not just sons, but children, little boys, little girls, both, given by God decades before, not just to be loved and cuddled and played with, but as his way of protecting in decades to come. I promise you, my beloved one, I got you. I'm going to build you up, and that's going to include building your family. And I'm going to protect you all the days of your life, that's going to include protecting your family, because I'm going to use them when you're 60 or when you're 70, when you're threatened and when you're weak and when you're old. I'm going to have built a wall around you. My blessing to you. He's doing it. Taking responsibility himself to build them and make them instruments in his hands. To give us a heritage that walks on after us strong and secure. Something every parent wants and comes to need as we age. Something we often worry about and are tempted to strive for in our own strength but it's all going to be in vain unless God does it and we trust it to him. Here, Lord, here's my kids. Raise them up. It's, it's a deep goodness of God laced into how he works in our life and it's the privilege of the Christian. All of this is the privilege of the Christian and only the privilege of the Christian. 
but certainly and sweetly the privilege of the Christian. The knowledge and the certainty that God will build his house and our house within it. All that we may try to do apart from him will vanish and become nothing, fail. But thank God that we don't actually have to and shouldn't labor apart from him and try to build something without him. We actually can find, this is the privilege to us, we actually can find fruitful lives of rest by saying, Lord, here's me and here's all of me. I surrender the desired outcomes to you and the paths that I think should lead there. Put all that at your feet and trust you to build my life and you to protect me in whatever way you see fit. There's hope and promise and fruitfulness and rest in that. Let's pray and thank God for it. Father, I want to say thank you. That you have staked your reputation on a promise to protect your people. Build us up. Make us what is right and good and necessary in your eyes and then to keep it so that nothing and no one can assail it and destroy us. You've staked your reputation on that. Thank you. And so let me ask you then, please do that. You take the families, the individuals, the, the elderly, the middle-aged, the, the young, the teenagers, the children. Would you take the people of your church in our congregation and in congregations all around the world, and would you build them, build your house, build our houses? Do that in a way that brings great glory to your name. And would you keep us, would you watch over us and protect us, and would you create longevity, create a heritage in us? Do it in a way that brings great glory to your name and makes clear that you have done it you are greatly to be praised. And give each of your people a confident rest and a safe sleep. That however you build and however you keep is under your hand right and good. Give us that confidence, I pray. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, your beloved, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 
6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.